Chapter 1. Recovering the Biblical Perspective If contemporary secular society has retained a flicker of interest in any department of religion, it is surely in the question of life after death, if only to provide answers for inquiring youngsters. Faith in the reality of life beyond the grave seems to be faltering. Since an article in the Now magazine of December 1979 quoted the astonishing statistic that 50% of those who claim to be Christians and church-going members of the Church of England do not believe in an afterlife. And yet, in New Testament terms, Christianity without a belief in the afterlife represents an absurd contradiction. Indeed, the tendency to doubt the future resurrection of the faithful called forth some of Paul's most forceful words. To the church at Corinth, he wrote, I quote, First and foremost, I handed on to you the facts which have been imparted to me, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised to life on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, Peter, and afterwards to the twelve. Then he appeared to James, and afterwards to all the apostles. In the end he appeared even to me. This is what we all proclaim, and this is what you believed. Now, if this is what we proclaim, that Christ was raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there be no resurrection, then Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then our gospel is null and void, and so is your faith. And we turn out to be lying witnesses for God because we bore witness that he raised Christ to life. Whereas if the dead are not raised, he did not raise him. For if the dead are not raised, it follows that Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, your faith has nothing in it, and you are still in your old state of sin. It follows also that those who have died within Christ's fellowship are utterly lost. If it is for this life only that Christ has given us hope, we of all men are most to be pitied. That's a quotation from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8 and 11 to 19 from the New English Bible. It is undeniable that this passage contains a ring of authority and a weight of conviction sadly lacking in much of contemporary theological writing. For the early Christians, it was the absolute validity of the fact of Christ's having appeared alive after his death to reliable witnesses that formed the very basis of their faith. To suggest that Christ had not been resurrected would have been to render the entire Christian venture pointless. Equally serious was the implied accusation that the apostles were propagating a dangerous falsehood. For the resurrection of Christ, as an unimpeachable historical fact witnessed by those who, quote, ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, Acts 10.41, provided the guarantee that Christ's followers would also live again after death, 
or indeed escape death entirely should they survive until Christ returned. Thus for Paul, the idea of Christianity without the past fact of Christ's resurrection and the future fact of the resurrection of the faithful would have been the ultimate absurdity. All the New Testament writers share this unshakable conviction. In the minds of the New Testament writers, belief in life after death was inextricably bound up with the doctrine of, quote, last things, eschatology, which is now quite unfamiliar to the average churchgoer. The eminent New Testament scholar J.A.T. Robinson states that the New Testament eschatological scheme has, quote, simply been silently dismissed without so much as a serious protest from within the ecclesiastical camp. For contemporary thought today, the Christian doctrine of the last things is dead, and no one has even bothered to bury it. That's from J.E.T. Robinson's book, In the End, God, page 27. This is an astonishing admission. It's tantamount to saying that an essential element of the original faith has been dropped, and no one seems even to have noticed its loss. The fact is that apostolic Christianity, without its very distinctive doctrine of the end times, is unrecognizable. The whole New Testament strains toward the moment when Christ will return in history to establish his kingdom on earth. Contemporary religion, if it looks forward to anything at all, expects a believer to experience an immediate presence in heaven at the moment of death. A serious distortion of New Testament Christianity occurs when the central doctrine of resurrection at, quote, the end, is ousted in favor of personal survival in the so-called intermediate state. For resurrection is the major premise of Christianity. The uniqueness of the faith lies in the absolute importance it attaches to the resurrection. We are here at the crux of the problem presented by contemporary views of the future life. The question which teachers and preachers of Scripture must take seriously is how far we have abandoned the biblical doctrine of resurrection. It must be admitted that our traditional notion of, quote, going to heaven when you die maintains only a very tenuous link with the resurrection if in fact it does not render it entirely superfluous. It is the purpose of this study to show that the New Testament presents an essentially simple and consistent teaching about life after death within the context of the related teaching of the return of Christ, the parousia. To separate these two topics is impossible in New Testament terms, and failure to see the connection between them inevitably leads to a misunderstanding of the early Christian view. To put the matter in straightforward terms, the New Testament offers the simple proposition that, in contrast to popular tradition, all the dead are actually dead, 
unconscious, quote, asleep, awaiting a resurrection to life to occur at a specific moment of future history. Traditional theology has substituted an individual eschatology for the corporate eschatology of the New Testament and by emphasizing the moment of death has rendered the central New Testament doctrine of the future resurrection almost redundant. For if the faithful departed are now, quote, in heaven with Christ, what possible meaning could there be in their future resurrection from the grave? And if the wicked dead are already being punished, what point is there in a future resurrection to judgment? The New Testament does not have to face these problems. It deals only with an awakening to resurrection life as a corporate experience in which all the faithful dead from Old Testament and New Testament times participate at the same moment of future time. The New Testament, in fact, teaches two resurrections. The first involves the Christian dead only to occur at the return of Christ. The second includes all, quote, the rest of the dead at the close of the millennium. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. Regrettably, the New Testament has been read and continues to be read with a totally different scheme in mind. Influenced by the unquestioned assumption that man is a combination of body and separable conscious soul, the average reader tries to superimpose upon the New Testament documents the popular and very non-biblical idea that the dead are at the moment of death immediately conscious in heaven or hell. Yet amazingly, as Dr. J.A.T. Robinson correctly states, in the Bible, heaven is nowhere the destination of the dying. That's from J.T. Robinson's book, In the End God. In recapturing the original Christian outlook on death and the doctrine of, quote, last things, the student of the New Testament will be enabled to participate more directly in the apostolic mind, which the New Testament teaches us to recognize as the mind of Christ himself. Indeed, it is only reasonable to suppose that Paul's writings represent the authentic Christian view if only because many of Christ's own disciples were Paul's contemporaries and he could have verified his teachings on the subject in consultation with them. In establishing the New Testament point of view, the proper emphasis will be restored to the resurrection at the parousia, or second coming, this perspective having been all but obliterated by the traditional belief. It will be worth quoting further from John Robertson's book, In the End God, in support of the general proposition thus far advanced that the New Testament outlook on the state of the dead and of, quote, last things is at total variance with contemporary belief. Somehow this fact has not reached the pulpit, much less the pew, 
at least in the Church of England. The writers on New Testament theology make the situation quite clear. I quote, The interest of modern man in Christian eschatology, if he has any interest at all, centers on the fact and moment of death. He wants to know whether he will survive it and in what form. He wants to know what he is to expect, quote, on the other side, what heaven will be like, whether there is such a place as hell, and so on. But it comes as a shock to realize how foreign is this perspective, which we take for granted, to the whole New Testament picture upon which Christianity is supposedly based. That's from John Robinson's book, In the End God. The reader will perhaps agree that this is a fair statement of his own experience. I recall as a child being told of my grandfather's death. I well remember thinking at the time that grandfather must now be, quote, in heaven. Little did I know that I had accepted popular thinking on the matter, but certainly not first-century Christian teaching. The significance of Dr. Robinson's words, quote, on which Christianity is supposedly based, cannot be overestimated, for they hint at the remarkable fact that traditional thinking and New Testament teaching are poles apart, and on a matter so fundamental to the whole of Christianity. What then is the New Testament position? I quote again from J.T. Robinson, For in the New Testament, the point around which hope and interest revolve is not the moment of death at all, but the day of the parousia, or the appearance of Christ in the glory of his kingdom. The center of interest and expectation continued right through the New Testament to be focused upon the day of the Son of Man and the triumph of his kingdom in a renovated earth. It was the reign or kingdom of the Lord Jesus with all his saints that engaged the thoughts and prayers of Christians, not their own prospect beyond the grave. The hope was social and it was historical. But as early as the second century AD, there began a shift in the center of gravity which was to lead by the Middle Ages to a very different doctrine. Whereas in primitive Christian thinking, the moment of the individual's decease was entirely subordinated to the great day of the Lord and the final judgment, in later thought, it is the hour of death which becomes decisive. That's the end of quotation from In the End God by J.A.T. Robinson. The significant point is that the radical shift in thinking occurred almost as soon as the New Testament documents recording apostolic faith had been completed. The reason for the shift, which in due course led to the, quote, very different doctrine, has been rightly attributed by scholars to the introduction of Hellenic 
that's to say Greek ideas about the nature of the soul, which run quite contrary to the Hebraic biblical views. It is essential for the contemporary student to realize that he has inherited, probably without question, the non-biblical Hellenic or Greek view. If he wishes to base his faith on Christ and the apostles, this Hellenic view must go. Indeed, there are solemn warnings within the pages of the New Testament against the introduction of doctrinal ideas which would render worship vain, even though Christ and God remain the object of that worship. In vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 9. Another quotation, you make the word of God of no effect by your tradition. Matthew 15, verse 6, it is the, quote, many who on the day of Christ's return will protest that they have been preaching in Christ's name only to discover that their work had never been recognized by Christ. I quote, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. That's from Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23. One wonders if these uncomfortable warnings are being taken seriously. The biblical view of immortality. The popular idea that good men go immediately upon death to heaven and bad men to, quote, the other place is founded on the Hellenic Greek doctrine that man has an immortal soul, which cannot by definition be subject to death. In biblical terms, however, and scripture on this point is quite consistent from Genesis to Revelation, human beings are not immortal by nature. Indeed, the term soul is used as the equivalent of, quote, living being or person as subject to death. It would be truer to say that man is a soul rather than that he has a soul. Animals are also described as souls, and souls in general can be dead. Numbers 6, verse 6, in the Hebrew speaks of dead souls. The following quotations will suffice by way of introduction to our subject to illustrate the point that in Hebraic thinking, the soul is mortal and that immortality is possessed by God alone and not inherently by man. Ezekiel 18, verses 4 and 20, quote, the soul that sins it shall die. Romans 2 verse 7, those who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. 1 Timothy 6 verses 15 and 16, the Lord of Lords 
who alone has immortality. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, Christ who has brought to light immortality through the gospel. Such teaching is, as J.A.T. Robinson says, quote, theologically commonplace, but astonishingly unfamiliar. For it is still an almost universally cherished belief that the immortality of the soul is a tenet of the Christian faith, despite the fact that it rests on theological assumptions which are fundamentally at variance with the biblical doctrine of God and man. That's from J.T. Robinson's book, In the End, God. Consistent with its view of the nature of man, the Bible describes the state of the dead in both Testaments in terms which a child would have no difficulty in grasping. Psalm 13, verse 3, Lighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Psalm 6, verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of thee. Psalm 146, verse 4, Man's breath goes forth, he returns to the earth, in that very day his thoughts perish. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know nothing. In later Old Testament thought, the doctrine of a resurrection emerges clearly, but it is always a resurrection of the dead, not of the living. And it's always from the sleep of death, and it is an eschatological event to occur at the end. Daniel 12, verse 2, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The New Testament, having its roots in the Old Testament, asserts the same hope with greater emphasis. John 5, verse 28 and 29, Jesus said, For the hour is coming, in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good to a resurrection of life, and they that have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 23, I quote, In Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ's at his coming. Entirely in harmony with this perspective are the New Testament statements about the present condition of Abraham, David, and indeed all the heroes of the Old Testament. Hebrews 11, verses 13 and 40, I quote, These all died, that's to say the Old Testament heroes of faith, without having received the promises that they, without us, should not be made perfect. Acts 2, verses 29 and 34. David is both dead and buried. He has not 
ascended into heaven. Those are the words of Peter. And by contrast with this statement, Hebrews 4, verse 14, Jesus, the Son of God, a great high priest who has passed into the heavens. It is contrary to any natural understanding of the meaning of words that men who wrote thus could have believed that those heroes of the faith had already gone to their reward, quote, in heaven. Indeed, Christ himself said that, quote, no man has ascended into heaven. John 3, verse 13. According to the New Testament, only Christ has yet been resurrected to become, quote, the first fruits of those who slept. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. The consistent message of the New Testament is that the dead are now asleep, a metaphor which most naturally and euphemistically means that they are, for the time being, unconscious, at rest, unaware of the passage of time, awaiting the great moment towards which the whole of the New Testament strains. When the dead are going to be resurrected and, quote, changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. The view of resurrection as an awakening from the sleep of death at a future time alone does justice to the writings of the New Testament, and it's the view founded upon the classic reference to resurrection in Daniel 12, verse 2, where we have a description of the afterlife as, quote, unconscious sleep followed by resurrection to joy or sorrow. So says D.E.H. Whiteley in his book, The Theology of St. Paul. The Hellenic Greek idea that the soul departs from the body at death is a flat contradiction of the Old and New Testament scheme and its introduction into Christian thinking has led to the utmost confusion. For what sense can be made of a scheme which places each dying Christian immediately in heaven at death, although David, we note, quote, has not ascended into heaven, only to have a dead person raised from the grave with all his fellows at a future time. An attempt to reconcile the Hebraic and Hellenic system has led to the idea of the resurrection of the body only implying that the soul is already, quote, alive. But such language is quite unbiblical. The scripture nowhere speaks of the resurrection of the body or the flesh. It speaks only of the resurrection of the dead. It is specifically said, as has been shown, that David himself, the whole person, is not in heaven, and that the dead, not their bodies only, are sleeping in the grave pending the future resurrection. Compare the English word cemetery from the Greek word kimitirion, a sleeping place. It is the resurrection of dead people that the New Testament preaches, 
not the resurrection of dead bodies. I quote, most of the distortions and dissensions which have vexed the church, remarked a former dean of York, quote, have risen through the insistence of sects or sections of the Christian community upon using words which are not found in the New Testament. That was a quotation found in Nigel Turner's book, Christian Words. The fullest account of the New Testament expectation of a future resurrection of the faithful dead and the transformation of the faithful surviving until the parousia, or second coming, is laid out in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18. We want you not to remain in ignorance, brothers and sisters, about those who sleep in death. You should not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so it will be for those who died as Christians. God will bring them to life with Jesus. For this we tell you as the Lord's word. We who are left alive until the Lord comes shall not forestall those who have died. Because at the word of command, at the sound of the archangel's voice and God's trumpet call, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. First the Christian dead will rise, then we who are alive shall join them, caught up in clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Console one another then with these words. That's from New English Bible Translation. It is clear from this passage that Paul wishes the Thessalonians to understand that those who have already died will be at no disadvantage as compared with those alive until the parousia. But such a remark is hardly sensible on the presumption that Paul believed that the dead were already, quote, in bliss with Christ. Indeed, in 1 Corinthians 15, he argues that unless there is to be a future resurrection, those who have died as Christians have perished. That is simply untrue. If, in fact, the dead achieve immortality or consciousness in an intermediate state apart from resurrection. Paul's view is that only resurrection at the last day can confer immortality. With these general considerations in mind, we proceed to a closer examination of the Old Testament definition of the nature of man, and particularly the Old Testament use of the words soul and spirit. This will ensure that we later approach the New Testament holding definitions for those terms corresponding to the Hebrew thought world and not alien definitions imported from the Greek Platonic system.